The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. The passage that was just read for us, Romans 8, is the passage we'll focus on this morning. If you received one of the black Bibles at the table, that's page 1122. Or if you have one of the little blue ones, it's page 80. And on the bulletin is how I've outlined the passage this morning. I think fall will always be my favorite season. College football, go blue. (laughs) Cider and donuts, all things I look forward to. But since moving south, I have now experienced for the first time the joy of spring. See, growing up in Michigan, winter is followed by second winter, and then third winter, and then we go straight to summer. There is no predictable transition. But now, in my own front yard, I see what I once assumed had been photoshopped on the masters. I see blooming azaleas. And when I walk, I see punctuated bursts of color breaking through green, pink, white, yellow, red, As Psalm 19, verse 1 says, the heavens indeed declare the glory of God. And spring declares something important. Spring illustrates God's victory over the death of winter. As the seasons progress, each year there are blooms that show us life where there once wasn't life. But they go dormant again. So how do we make sense of the fact that there's a cycle that hasn't yet come to fruition. And that's actually the heart of Romans 8. Romans 8 is answering this question. Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, what does that mean in a life and in a world that we still experience winter, so to speak? Death, suffering, sorrow. The title of this sermon, this Easter Sunday, the title is Hope Eternal. And I believe that's the heart of what God is revealing to us in Romans 8, because Jesus rose from the dead. The preceding chapters in Romans have made clear that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the turning hinge upon which all of God's blessings come. In Romans 6, verse 5, we read, If we've been united with Jesus in a death like his through faith, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The idea is we receive the benefits of Jesus' death and the benefits of Jesus' resurrection. Romans 8, verse 11, closer to where we'll pick up today, says, If the Spirit of whom Jesus was risen from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit. So this morning, I want to show us from Romans 8, let God speak through his word. Three blessings, three gifts of the resurrection. Three gifts of the resurrection. Three realities of the gift of the resurrection. Here's the first, and it's on your handout. Number one, because Jesus has risen from the dead, suffering has a purpose and a promise. Suffering has a purpose and a promise. Look in Romans 8, verse 18, if you would. God says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Even creation feels that same pain and that same tension of looking forward to the glory to be revealed. 
Suffering, of course, is a key concern that is actually one of the reasons people reject God or reject Christian truth claims. For many people, the idea of suffering is not merely an academic concern, but a deeply personal pain. The question is often phrased this way. How could there be a good and all-powerful God who allows such suffering? Many answers could be given, but one that I would share this morning. If God is so big and so transcendent that we blame him for allowing suffering, isn't it also true that God is so big and so transcendent he could have purposes for suffering beyond what we could currently understand? Last fall, I was out in my yard raking leaves for the umpteenth time. (laughs) And out there with my boys, my youngest, my two-year-old, ran into the street. And as he darted into the street, I ran after him and picked him up to bring him to safety. But when I picked him up, he did that thing two-year-olds do where they arch their back and they swing their arms at you and they do everything they can because they're so mad that you would pick them up in that moment. In that moment, he's thinking, my dad is so big, he's ruining my life. But he's not considering my dad is so big, he may know something I don't know. Romans 8 is showing us that God is so big and so good that the sufferings we experience are actually not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed in God's perfect purpose. So is suffering painful? Yes. But is it pointless? No. And is it permanent? Well, because Jesus rose? No. There's a glory to be revealed. The glory that follows shows that there's a better world to come, and that better world is secured because Jesus Christ rose. Verse 22 will prepare us for number two. So if number one, our suffering has a promise and a purpose, number two, because Jesus rose, the final future will be far better than our best present. The final future will be far better than even our best present. We read in verse 22, for we know, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The image of pains of childbirth indicates something that you anticipate coming that will be better than the process that brought you to it. There are joyful days in the process where you get excited, but they're still groaning because you haven't yet fully experienced what you've been longing for. This is why Romans 8, 22 is teaching us that the final future, because Jesus is risen, is better than the best days we've ever had here. The best days we've ever had here still can deteriorate, decay, cycle, spring will end, winter will return. But there's a final future where everything that we've longed for becomes even more gloriously true than we could have imagined. Verse 23 tells us this further. Not only does the creation groan, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now in verse 24, God puts a word on our path that's very important, and it's the word hope. Verse 24, for in this hope, the hope that what Christ has secured will come true, we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hoped, obviously, for who hopes for what he sees. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it 
with patience. Hope deferred is hope. I want to pause here for a second because I fear the word hope hits our American ears in a way that sounds fairly flimsy. Right now I have a Time magazine subscription and two magazines ago, if I recall correctly, there was an article written by the man who currently is the economics professor at Harvard. He was formerly one of the presidents at Harvard. In the article, he is writing with great concern for the inflation going on in our country, and he writes to try to correct the current administration with some guidance. But he has one sentence that I think captures the way we think about this term. He says, Mr. President, hope is not a strategy. Now, by that, what he means is that until they can show some sort of current demonstration, there's no cause for an anticipated outcome. We tend to use the word hope that way. Hope is flimsy. Hope doesn't actually guarantee anything, but actually doesn't it matter what you're hoping in. I grew up in the city of Detroit, and we have a professional football team there. I'm using the word professional very loosely. We, we have a group of men who make a lot of money to fail every Sunday, actually, is what, is what we have. The Detroit Lions are a terrible, terrible football team. My grandfather spent his whole life saying, someday they're going to make the Super Bowl. Now he's in glory, and he knows better. <laughs> but for my lifetime, I've also wondered, will I ever see the Detroit Lions in the Super Bowl? And if I was to go put money on them, I would demonstrate myself to be a gullible fool. Because there's no reason to put hope in what has not given us any cause for hope. Conversely, my wife grew up in South Carolina, and she grew up with what's called a hope chest. Maybe you had one of those as well. It's when a little girl is given a piece of furniture in which she places over the years things that she would like to have in her future home, assuming she gets married. Now, as she had those things in her hope chest, over the years she may have thought, man, I, I don't know if this is going to come true. I don't have any cause to believe that this is going to be fulfilled. But then in God's grace, there was the day that we met one another. And then there was the day that we got engaged. And then suddenly that hope had cause for future belief. The day came when we were married and the hope chest opened and out of it came all sorts of things. And I've been working on them ever since. <laughs> This passage tells us that the reason we can have confident hope in what God will do is because of what God has already done. Would you look in verse 32, please, so you see what I'm talking about. Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friend, I appeal to you. Truly, this morning, if you don't feel comfortable putting your hope in God for the eternity of your soul, what do you know of that has more certitude? What do you know of that has more solidity that you're ready to rest your soul in it? The reason we have hope that cannot be put to shame is because what God has already done. We merely now await the wedding day, but the promise has already occurred in fact, the groom has come and he will return for his bride. Romans 8 tells us what God has began, he will certainly finish. Would you pick up in verse 28 of Romans 8? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the ultimate good. 
For those who are called according to his purpose, how do we know this? Because verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Firstborn means first to emerge from the dead. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Perhaps you're unfamiliar with the word glorified. Maybe you're new to church this morning. The word glorified in the Bible refers to the final perfection of our body, soul, and spirit that will be enjoyed in heaven. Now, we don't have it yet, but yet the text said it in the past tense, didn't it? Glorified. Why? Because... God is totally trustworthy. We have all cause for hope. He will finish what he started. It's sort of interesting that in our modern time, we struggle to believe God because we think that what he does is beyond comprehension or that it can't be proven. We think of miracles as suspension of the natural order. Don't you know that miracles are simply revelation of the original order? Miracles are demonstration of God's original design, which did not include death or disease. Every time Jesus is healing someone, in fact, when Jesus rose from the dead, it's a preview of what God will certainly do. Like how one author put it, Jesus' miracles are not really a challenge to our minds. They're a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. There is reason for hope. I love J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. And in his final book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's a great illustration of this. Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf is not dead as he had thought, but he's alive. And so Sam says, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer is yes, because Jesus has risen from the dead. C.S. Lewis put his finger on this perfectly when he wrote in The Great Divorce, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Look in verse 24 again of Romans 8. For in this hope we were saved. So we wait with patience for hope that we know will come true. So number one, because Jesus is risen from the dead, even suffering has a purpose and a promise. Number two, because Jesus has risen from the dead, our final future is far better than even our best present. But number three, because Jesus has risen from the dead, we can be fully known and yet eternally loved. One of the fears many of us have, especially in intimate relationships, is that someone might find out something about us that we've tried to keep secret, and if they found that thing out about us, they wouldn't love us anymore. They wouldn't want to be with us anymore. If they discovered that, we would be so ashamed, we'd be so embarrassed that we wouldn't feel like we could be comfortable with them. That concern is one every human has, and so that's why Romans 8 concludes by answering it. Look in verse 31 of Romans 8. These are beautiful verses. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Now notice these promises in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then notice the question in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Please pause and think about how personal this promise is. What if God found out about that horrible thing that you're hoping no one finds out about? What if God found out about that thing you saw or said or did or hid or desired that you've hoped no one would find out? What is he going to do? Look at the answers to the questions in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God elect? No one, because God justifies. Who is to condemn? No one, because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's interceding. For us, Satan was to say to God, God, don't you know what Josh did? His answer is yes, but don't you know what Jesus did in his place? Therefore, he's justified. He's declared righteous, not because he's righteous, but because my son was righteous in his place. Verse 34 gives us all the movements of the life of Christ. Christ died for our sin. He was raised for our redemption, and he's still at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf, regardless of any charge made against us. That promise is so secure that the text goes further in verse 35. Not only are we protected from any charge, we're protected from any calamity. Look in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What if we go through horrible trials? Will that separate us? Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, suffering is not pointless and it's not purposeless. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, our final days will be far better than our best present. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, we can be fully known and yet eternally loved. Did you notice verse 39 says that's for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what is it then that Jesus did that secures us like that? Actually, think of those three statements, but now think of them through the lens of the life of Christ. If suffering has a purpose and a promise, think of how Jesus suffered knowing that it had a purpose and a promise. Good Friday, we looked at 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, and there we read that he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. When he was reviled, he did not revile again. When he was threatened, he did not return threats, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was able to suffer because he knew it had a purpose and it had a promise, and the promise it had was our salvation. Look at the second one, the final future, far better than the best present. You know Philippians 2? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient 
to death, even the death on the cross. But that's not the end. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't the final future far better than the best present? Those in Jesus know their suffering has been victorious Victory has occurred over it, and they know their final future is exaltation. But even number three applies to the life of Jesus, does it not? Fully known, eternally loved. The Apostle Peter explained this well. Peter was one of those disciples who struggled. In fact, he perhaps struggled more than all the rest. On the night that Jesus was crucified, Peter had denied him three times. Peter, though, was truly a believer, and so he repented, and he came back to Jesus, and he was forgiven, and he was powerfully restored. And then he preached at Pentecost an incredibly powerful, bold sermon. In the sermon, he told everyone present that we are all guilty of the death of Jesus because our sins have nailed him there. But then he said this point that's important for our purposes this morning. Peter explained That David, writing in Psalm 16, a thousand years prior to Jesus, was writing of Jesus when he said, Thou will not leave thy Holy One to decay. See, Jesus would not be forever abandoned. Because though he was forsaken when he had our sin, he conquered it, he finished it, and he was eternally loved as all will be who are in him. Christ indeed shows us that suffering has a purpose And a promise, the final future is far better than our best present, and we can be fully known and yet eternally loved. But I have to love you enough this morning to tell you what happens if you're not in Christ. These incredible promises of the resurrection, to know that your suffering has a purpose, to know that your final days are better than your best present, to know that you're eternally loved, even though you're fully known, are for those who are in Christ. Christ Jesus. So what if you're not in Christ Jesus? Well, we can take those three statements and reverse them. If you reject Jesus, then number one, your suffering is pointless and it is endless. It works no weight of glory. It conquers no transcendent change. You have no eternal confidence or security. If you reject Jesus, number two, your final future will be far worse than your worst days here. Jesus loves us enough to tell us this clearly. In Mark 9, he says that those who are thrown into hell go to a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Have you ever noticed how destructible worms are? They're easy to destroy. So how could they be thrown in a fire and never be burned? The answer is because this is a fire where the torment is everlasting. Number three, if you choose to reject Christ, not only is your suffering pointless and endless, and not only is your final future certainly far worse than your worst days here, but number three, you will remain unknown because you're unwilling. This is not God's intent for you. Last night, I read to my sons, and we went over a verse that we've been memorizing for some time. It's Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. With the heart, one believes and is justified. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is it that Jesus came to save us from? What is it that he offers to us as free that he earned in our place? The answer is he comes to save us from the just consequence that our rebellion and our sin has accrued. Sin, in fact, is what blinds us to our very need to the salvation that Jesus alone offers. There's two things about sin I want to remind us of that are not commonly understood in our culture. First, sin is not ultimately legal in an American sense or horizontal in a relational sense. Sin is ultimately vertical and against God. Sin is man in revolt. Our problem fundamentally is with our Creator. But secondly, sin can manifest itself quite variously. There are lots of different ways to reject God. You can reject Him by overtly saying that you reject Him and living recklessly, but you can also reject Him by trying to think that you can be good without needing Him. On Friday, I was driving to church. It was Good Friday. I'd come home, and it was about lunch hour, and I was making my way back. So it's about noon. I'm in the car, and I turn on 99.9, the fan. I'm assuming that I'm going to hear sports talk about the basketball playoffs or the hockey playoffs, but instead, the radio disc jockey on the Raleigh sports station decides to critique the origin of religion and the goodness of humanity. I wrote it down so I could make sure I quote him exactly. Here's what he said. He said, I don't care this weekend if you worship God or gods or no gods. As long as your choice makes you a good person, then I approve. Now, I had three immediate thoughts when I turned it off for the final seven minutes of my drive. The first was the sports DJ on 99.9? was appointed the final judge of all humanity? (laughs) He determines who's good? My second thought was, by what criteria do we understand good? Who determines what goodness is? And my third thought was, who is perfectly and truly good? Romans 10.3 says this, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own they would not submit to God's righteousness. Romans 3.10 says this, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, I'm telling you this because I love you and because God's telling it to you. Do not deceive yourself. You and I are not righteous. The only person who is infinitely righteous is God. The need that every single one of us have is to be saved from our sin to have righteousness placed on our account and to have our debt of unrighteousness placed on an innocent person's account. And praise God, that person is Jesus. But there is no other way. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. If we get upset by God being so clear, telling us that we're sinners, if we bow our back and say, how dare you accuse me of that? How dare you tell me that I'm not perfectly righteous? We should just calm down for a second and then listen to Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, if we will accept 
the reality of who we truly are, we can embrace the joy that God will save those who admit who they truly are. God saves sinners. Romans 6.23 puts it clear, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8 tells us these blessings from the resurrection are they yours. This morning, if you know Christ, let me remind you, even your darkest days of suffering have a purpose and a promise there's a glory to be revealed. Let me remind you, your final future will be far better than your best present. Let me remind you that you are fully known and eternally loved. But this morning, let me also love you enough to challenge you to consider proof of life. We've all known people who had a shallow experience, and so there was minor change. But we've also known people who've experienced something life-altering that have been forever different. Do you know what happened to those who were following Jesus after he rose from the dead? You remember the disciples? When Jesus was on the cross, they were all scattered and fearful for their life. But after Jesus rose from the dead, his followers were fearless and willing to be martyred. Saul, before he met the resurrected Jesus, was convinced that he was a good person. Once he met the resurrected Jesus, he later described himself as the worst of all sinners, and yet Christ loved him. My favorite description is the road to Emmaus, where the risen Jesus is walking, and there are two disciples on the road, and they don't know who he is. On the road, he explains who he is through the Old Testament scriptures, but then they say this, did not our hearts burn within us when he was reading the scriptures? And then they went and told the eleven. See, in the Bible, everyone who's truly encountered the risen Jesus could never be the same. So my question for you is this. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean to you on Monday? What does it mean to you next month? Don't settle for a counterfeit, shallow experience when you could know the true risen Jesus and never be the same. Because Christ is risen, suffering is not pointless, but purposeful. Because Christ is risen, the far future can be better, far better than our best present. And because Christ is risen, you can be fully known and eternally loved if you will come to him and trust in him. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, I pray, Lord, that the resurrection of Christ would encourage us again that we have received hope that could never be put to shame because it is founded in the accomplishments of Jesus in his life and death and resurrection, and it is secured in your very character. But Lord, we have to understand that if we reject Jesus, we are neglecting such a great salvation. So I pray that no one will reject Jesus this morning. May they understand the reality of life apart from him. Instead, Lord, help us to realize that we must submit to the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our place and acknowledge that we come unrighteous, needy, and sinful. But there is one way. Lord, thank you that that way was paved when Jesus marched 
the hill of Calvary and died in between two thieves and bled for our punishment and his wounds have healed our stripes. And Lord, thank you that he has risen and now intercedes so that any who believe in him, no charge could be made against them. Nothing could be said that God does not know. No defense could be made other than Jesus pointing to his nail-pierced hands and sigh. So thank you for the great mediator, our high priest, our risen Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.